Good morning, church. So glad to have you with us today. Um, hey, so I wanted to take just a couple of weeks. It's kind of a, a, a two-part lesson, uh, this week, next week, and then we're going to start into uh, something else. But I wanted to take a couple of weeks just here again at the beginning of school. For me, like August is a new year. Many of you can relate, right? Way back at the beginning of this year, if you remember back to January, we had this series called I Am a Church Member. And hopefully that got you thinking as to what it looks like to be a member of this church in particular and the body of Christ and God's kingdom as a whole. But I want to make it a little bit more specific. This is not necessarily a rehash of everything we did earlier in the year. This is more of a where have we been, where are we now, where are we going, specific to our church. So I hope you'll follow along with me over the next couple weeks, and I hope you take some of this to heart. But as we begin, um, I would love us all to stand as I read this over you. This is a prayer of Paul to the church in Ephesus. If you're able and willing, would you stand as I read this over you? This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 from the New Living Translation. Um, Let this be our prayer as we begin as well. Paul says, ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope that you, uh, sorry, that he has given to those of us he has called, his holy people who are rich in glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It's made full and complete in Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. And we all, the whole church said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. There's a line from the phenomenal movie Cars. (laughs) Where Mater is showing lightning how he can drive in reverse, right? And he says this little line that, I don't know, it's just so Mater. He says, I don't need to know where I'm going, I just need to know where I've been, if you remember that one. I think it's, it's healthy and good to remember where we've been and where we've come from. Um, now, many of you have been a part of this church for many, many years. As Mike asked, how many of you have been here since 2009? Several of your hands went up. If I kept going back and back and back, several of you, you know, we'd still be going 
for a while here. And I won't do that. We do have several uh, people who have been here uh, practically since the beginning. But where do we come from, right? Where have we been? What is our tradition? What is our history? And if you are unaware, the Tulip Street Christian Church comes from what is known as the Restoration Movement, Okay, hopefully you've heard something of the Restoration Movement at some point. Now, I know there are many of us here who come from different backgrounds, uh, different, different upbringings. Some of you, I know, were raised Baptist or Methodist, maybe Presbyterian, maybe some other denomination out there. Uh, you know, me and my family, we grew up Churches of Christ, which we'll get to in just a moment. Um, maybe even some former Catholics in here, if I had to guess. Uh, we all come from very different backgrounds and histories and everything. I, I, I know that most of us probably have not grown up in the Restoration Movement, but that's okay. And here's why. The Restoration Movement, and this is just from the Wikipedia page. This was just the best summary I could find, okay? So take it for what it is. But the Restoration Movement is a Christian movement that began in the United States frontier in the early 1800s, uh, the pioneers of this movement were seeking to reform the church from within and sought, quote, the unification of all Christians in a single body patterned after the church of the New Testament. See, there were these men in the early 1800s, late 17, early 1800s, who were tired of the bickering and the arguing and the back and forth between who's right and who's wrong and who's in and who's out and who are the real Christians and who are the people that got it all wrong because they got this little thing in, you know, disagreeing with us. So obviously they're going to hell and we're the only ones going to heaven because we have all the right creeds and dogmas and, and traditions and teachings. They were tired of it. <laughs> they were sick of it. They were sick of the infighting between people who were supposed to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And so they said, what, if, what would happen if we stripped all of that away? What would happen if we got rid of all man-made creeds, all man-made rules and regulations, all of these litmus tests for whether or not we can fellowship with you? What if we just stripped all of that away and got back to the basics, got back to the Bible, Stop worrying about what this person said or that person said or this person taught or what that person argued and just get back to Scripture as kind of our unifying least common denominator that we can all hopefully agree on. What would that look like? And so they tried it. Um, now, this is a long paragraph. You can look at it and read, but I highlighted a few of the key names. Barton W. Stone... Um, was one of these. And, and there's kind of a couple different movements that developed independently and then came together. Barton W. Stone was one of them. Um, I, I like what it said. He began in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, not too terribly far from here, and identified just as Christians. And the second was uh, led by a guy named Thomas Campbell and his son Alexander Campbell. Um, they were Scottish by uh, origin, but came here and uh, both of their movements were kind of in the Appalachian frontier area among kind of the more rural population. Um, and 
the Campbells eventually settled on the, the name Disciples of Christ. That might, have, that might sound familiar to some of you as well. Both groups, I love this, sought to restore the Christian church based on visible patterns set forth in the New Testament. And both believed that creeds kept Christianity divided. And in 1832, they joined fellowship with a handshake. So Barton W. Stone and Thomas and Alexander Campbell, and as you'll see, there's another man named Walter Scott who was part of the movement as well. Um, them and their families all got together and said, hey, we're working toward the same goal here. Now, they didn't agree on everything. They had disagreements even within themselves between uh, Alexander Campbell, Barton W. Stone. They, they didn't see eye to eye on some things that they held to be very important. But those matters of opinion, they were able to set aside for the benefit of unity in Christ and freedom in Christ. That's a picture of the Cane Ridge Meeting House in Kentucky. Uh, I know a lot of churches that I grew up in would take like almost pilgrimages there, field trips to, to the Cane Ridge Meeting House uh, to, to see kind of where it all began. Um, see, so here are some of the core beliefs. And if you're curious, um, the Christian church, which Tulip Street Christian Church is part of, and churches of Christ, like we've got the Mitchell Church of Christ and several other churches of Christ in this county, um, and the Disciples of Christ, which often have the name Christian Church and maybe like underneath it, Disciples of Christ. There's a few of those in the county as well. We're all basically cousins. We all come from this restoration movement. And here are some of the core beliefs. And I think these are all things that most Christians can just say yes to and agree to. Uh, that Christians shouldn't be divided. That Christ intended the creation of one church. That creeds divide. And by creeds, I just mean creedal statements that a church like the Methodist church or the Pentecostal church or the Presbyterian church or whatever denomination has its own set of beliefs or confessions like the Westminster Confession, whatever. Um, creeds divide, but Christians should be able to find agreement by standing on the Bible. Uh, ecclesiastical traditions divide. That just means the way we do church. You know, this church tradition versus that church tradition, how we worship and gather on Sundays. They divide, but Christians should be able to find common ground by following the practice, as best can be determined, of the early church. You know, we get, again, we go through the book of Acts or uh, the letters to Corinth or uh, Paul's letters to the churches and to figure out as best we can, like, how do we do this thing called church? What did that look like in the first century? And how can we best emulate that and bring those principles and ideals into the 21st century, or the 19th century, as it were, for these guys. Names of human origin divide, but Christians should be able to find common ground by using biblical names for the church. Now, I don't put as much emphasis on this, but this was important to them, because you had, for instance, and this is not knocking any of them, you had, like, for instance, the Lutherans that trace it back to Martin Luther, uh, you had the Wesleyans, tracing it back to John Wesley, and so do the Methodists. Uh, you know, that Methodist was, was almost a slur, uh, a, a derogatory term that they just ended up embracing and became known as the Methodists. Uh, and all, all these names that uh, originated from various sources outside of Scripture, they're like, let's get rid of all these names and let's go back to what they were called in the Bible. For instance... Christian church, church of God, uh, church of Christ, as opposed to 
Methodist, Lutheran, etc. I don't think that's as critical today, but it was a big deal for them. Because you could say, well, I'm a Christian, and somebody else would say, well, I'm a Lutheran. It's like, well, but aren't we all Christians? So they were trying to get rid of the labels so that we could all just get back to unity in Christ. Some more of the core beliefs, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. <laughs> all right, foundational belief, right? We can all back that. That Christians, here's the key, here's another key one, that Christians should celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first day of each week. There's precedent for that throughout Scripture, and they thought that was important. And we, as a body, believe that's important. We, if you've been with us for any length of time, know that we take communion every Sunday, as opposed to quarterly or monthly or whatever. It's important for us to have that time. And another thing on the Lord's table they, as opposed to some of these other denominations that they were fighting against, not really fighting against, just kind of doing their own thing as in, in relation to that, um, they didn't have any sort of litmus test for who was it able to partake the Lord's Supper. For instance, they didn't have you, you know, do the sign of the cross or swear a, a creedal statement or confession in order for you to take communion. If you showed up to one of their gatherings it was what's called an open table. Anybody that believed Jesus Christ as the Son of God was welcome in their gatherings to partake communion. It didn't matter what your background was. There was no barrier in place. It was open. It was an open table. Uh, baptism of adult believers is necessarily by immersion in water. You know, we've got our baptistry set up back there. Um, this was another, this was a, a part of disagreement as well. Like Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, Barton W. Stone, they had different approaches to this too. Now they all practiced adult immersion baptism. But if somebody came to one of their gatherings and said, I want to be a part of your church. And they said, what, you know, okay, tell us about your background uh, and history and some. And, and if they said, well, I was sprinkled as a baby, which was common. Um, there was some disagreement as to how to move forward. Barton W. Stone was more prone to the freedom in Christ. So he, he uh, didn't necessarily insist that they be baptized by immersion as an adult. The Campbells, on the other hand, thought it was important to take that step of faith. So Stone was less likely to question your baptism story and your salvation story than the Campbells were. So there was a little bit of disagreement on that. Okay, and it might be kind of, a personal thing. If you feel like you need to take that step and be uh, baptized by immersion as an adult, confessing your faith in Christ uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, we are more than ready to do that too. But it, it, depending on where you go, they might question, you know, what your baptism story and stuff was. So there was a little disagreement on that. But we as a church still practice baptism of adult believers by immersion. Uh, and then this, because the founders wanted to abandon all denominational labels, they used biblical names for the followers of Christ. So Christians only, uh, basically, uh, or Church of Christ, Christian Church, names that derive from Scripture. Um, they promoted a return to the purposes of the first century church as described in the New Testament. And, but here's the kicker, this bottom one. It was primarily a unity movement. Primarily, that's how it started, at least. <laughs> that's how it started, as a unity movement. But then there was a time um, 
after the time of Stone, after the time of Campbell, where uh, some other men kind of took over and turned it from a unity movement to a exclusivity movement. Then, in the early 1900s or so, it started to become more and more exclusive, more and more barriers, more dividing walls, more arguments as to who's in and who's out. That started to develop after Stone and Campbell. Okay, so if you've ever had an experience in a church of Christ or a Christian church or disciples of Christ where it seemed very rigid, very traditional, very closed off, very us versus them, yeah, that's not how it originally intended to be. (laughs) It was originally intended to be anybody from any faith background, anybody who professes belief in Christ Jesus is welcome to worship with us and be a part of our body. It was a unity movement. To begin with, um, some common slogans. I just, I love these. They're funny, okay? And some of them are like, great. Others are like, ooh. Uh, but especially this first one, where scripture speaks, we speak. Where scriptures are silent, we are silent. Uh, oh, growing up churches of Christ, I can tell you that is not the case. They would say it. I had preachers growing up that would say that. I had church members that would say it, but then they would spout out their opinions that were not in Scripture as if they were. There was a lot of speaking where Scripture was silent. I hope that we can get back to some of that, though. That's why all the preaching is very rooted in in Scripture. All of our classes are rooted in Scripture. We want to get back to the heart of the gospel as defined in Scripture. Uh, The Church of Jesus Christ on earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one There's one body, one church globally. I believe that. Uh, We are, I like this one. We are Christians only, but not the only Christians. (laughs) We are Christians only, but we're not the only Christians. You know, there's that joke of, you know, you get to to heaven and uh, somebody, uh, St. Peter's showing you around and he takes you past this one area and says, okay, you got to be really quiet as we walk past here. And you say, why? And it's because that's the church of Christ people. They think they're the only ones here. And you can substitute any denomination in that regard. I've heard it for anything, right? We are Christians only, but we're not the only Christians. This one is key. And this is actually part of our membership packet. If you decide to place membership with us. We give you some information. And this is, this is even in our membership packet because this is what we want to strive for. In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. And in all things, love. On the essentials, <laughs> we got we to gotta get that right. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, that God is the creator of the universe, that the Holy Spirit is active and powerful in the lives of believers. In the essentials, there has to be unity. In opinions, liberty. (laughs) Now, I grew up where there wasn't a lot of liberty for opinions. And maybe some of you did too. But let's let's try to get back to that. And in all things, love. And then finally, one of the main slogans that they had during this time is no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no law but love, no name but the divine. 
Okay, I hope that's a pretty decent crash course into restoration movement history, okay? There's so much more you can dive into if that's your jam, and I'd, I'd encourage it because it's, it is interesting to me, and some of you are like, okay, can we move on, please? I get it. Um, growing up Churches of Christ, yeah, we were non-instrumental. There's not a whole lot of difference between Churches of Christ and our independent Christian churches, mostly except for the instruments. And if you're wondering what's that, what, what that's all about, I'll tell you later. I don't really want to get into it right now. <laughs> There's some baggage there, if you can pick up on that. But what about us, okay? The Mitchell Christian Church, and this is on our website. This is our website's uh, history page. Mitchell Church of Christ, also now known as Tulip Street, or Mitchell Christian Church. I said Church of Christ. That's the one I'm used to. Mitchell Christian Church, also now known as Tulip Street Christian Church, was founded on October 26, 1953, when a group of local citizens met at Burris Consolidated School for its first official meeting. The foundation of the church had been laid over the previous five years, as many of those people had been meeting for weekly prayer meetings in various homes in the Mitchell community. There's so much more to unpack there with our history. You can go to our website, tulipstreet.com history, and read all about it if you want to. But this just got me because, like, 1953, doing the math, we're coming up on our 70th anniversary, our 70th birthday as a church. That's really cool. And Miss Teresa was there for all of it. <laughs> and she's like, oh, don't point that out. Max was there for a lot of it, twice. Um, speaking of, at the bottom of our history page, we have a list of all the men who have led this church as lead pastors or interim pastors or fill-ins over the years. And there's 20 of us. I mean, there's one guy on there twice, if you can pick that out. Number eight and number uh, 13, I think. <laughs> but as I was looking at that, I, I'm just, I'm reminded that where we are now is only possible because of where we've been. Who we are as a church, who we are as a body has been shaped by all of these believers who have gone before us. Not just back to, you know, Barton W. Stone and Alexander Campbell, but to like all these men and women and children that you see in this picture. The men and women who believed so strongly in the mission of God's kingdom here in Mitchell and around the world, that they were willing to step out in faith and to form something that would impact the lives of so many of us. This is where we come from. All of these men and women that have gone before us. As the saying goes, we are but stand we, we can see so far because we're standing on the shoulders of giants. Of all those who have laid the path for us. As, as I'm looking at this picture that I don't know anybody's name in there. Miss Teresa can probably point out some of them. But I don't know anybody's name in that picture, but I know their heart. I know their passion for the Lord. And it makes me think, what are people in the coming generations, 70 years from now, going to think about us and the legacy we have led for them. Where are we going with this? And as I'm looking at these faces and I'm looking at these names, 
I can't help but think about this passage in Romans 16. Don't worry, Donna, I'm not going to make you translate all of this because that's a lot of names. Um, But look at all those names highlighted in blue. This is Paul writing to a church in Rome, a church where he's never visited, but he knows these people. He loves these people. He's worked alongside so many of these people. And he's writing this letter to the church in Rome, and he says, greet these people. Tell them I said hi. Give them a hug for me. Tell them I'm thinking about them. And it, it's, it's a call out. Don't call, uh, the famous preacher Fred Craddock When I was going through my preaching courses in college, we had to watch a a sermon of his on Romans 16. And his, his thing was, don't call it a list. It's not a list. It's not just a list of names. These are relationships. These are real people. These are flesh and blood human beings, just like you, just like me, who had desires, who had struggles and temptations who had to get up every morning and make the decision to live a life for Christ, to live a life for something bigger than themselves, because they knew that what they were doing now will outlive them. Don't call it a list. These are relationships. These are friends. These are family members. There's even one person where uh, Paul says, hey, greet this person and his mom, who's like a mother to me too. Like, it's just so beautiful to know this is where we come from. This is the church. This is us. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. You and I, you are a part of an unbroken chain of faithful men and women across the centuries. Someone taught you about Jesus And whoever taught you about Jesus, somebody had to teach them about Jesus. And somebody had to teach them about Jesus. And somebody had to teach. It's an unbroken chain stretching all the way back to the first century. If any one of those generations had dropped the ball, that chain would be broken. And we wouldn't be here. But thank God for those men and women through the centuries who have taken that call to make disciples of all nations. Seriously. And maybe we can answer that call as well, okay? But there's a problem, okay? There's a problem. (laughs) All right, there's always some problems. Are you ready for it? If you looked up church in the dictionary, if you were just curious, what is church? And you go to the dictionary, this is what it says. A building used for public Christian worship. Number two, a particular Christian organization with its own distinctive doctrines And number three, institutionalized religion as a political or social force. Do you find that problematic? Do you have any issue with that definition? And the sad thing is that's what we've become so much. That is in the dictionary because that is what church has become. But is that what it was intended to be? If you looked up the definition for community, all right, community. Number one, a group of people living together in one place and having a particular characteristic in common. Number two, the condition of having certain attitudes and interests in common. And number three, a group of interdependent 
plants or animals, or humans, I would say, uh, growing and living together. Togetherness, commonality, shared beliefs, shared values, shared ideals. The word for church as translated in scripture is, comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Maybe you've heard that before, ekklesia. And ekklesia, from my big, thick, $160, 10-pound Greek-English lexicon, um, is defined as this, a regularly summoned legislative body, because ecclesia started out as a Greek and Roman concept. It was just a bunch of people getting together to make decisions, all right? Uh, another way it was translated for them, another concept would be assembly. This is the assembled body, okay? The assembled group. Number two, a casual gathering of people, <laughs> an assemblage, a gathering. And number three, a people with shared belief, a community or congregation. Nothing about a building, nothing about politics necessarily, nothing about institutions or organizations. An ecclesia, a church, is just a gathering of people, a community, an assembly, a congregation. A church is not the building. The sign on the building doesn't really matter. The name on the building doesn't really matter. The, what is inside the building doesn't really matter as far as decorations and stained glass and all this stuff. I've grown up in churches where you would have thought it was the most sacred ground and anything that comes into the church building is therefore holy and can never be thrown away. Right? <laughs> Some of y'all are like, uh, Guilty. You know, we go through here and clean out stuff sometimes. You're like, can I throw this away? It's like, oh, I don't know. You better ask so-and-so. Their grandmother donated or whatever. Like, just because it's inside a church building doesn't make it holy, right? The church is us. The church is us. The church is the people. So how did church become so associated with a building, with a structure? Well, it's interesting. I was doing some research and I came across this article um, the title of it, Should Ecclesia Really Be Translated as Church in the Bible? And the author says this. He says, this is a twisted tale. The 5th uh, century Cappadocian, parentheses, central Turkey, Christians called their communities Kariakos Oikos, or the Lord's house. This is the Lord's house. That's what they called their gatherings. That's the name they chose to call what they did, all right? It wasn't a specific building. It was just us. We are the Lord's house. And there's imagery throughout the New Testament about how we are being built up into the Lord's house. But it's always the people, never the physical structure itself. Uh, and they had major influence on the bio, uh, translation of the Bible into Gothic, an old East Germanic language. The Goths rendered Kariakos Oikos as Kyrik, just shortened it, um, and in Old English, it became kirk, and then in English, church. So the word church, as we know it, translated in our English Bibles, goes all the way back to the 5th century, kind of a shortened version of the Lord's house, which only ever referred to a gathering of people, still. But he goes on. He says there's one more anomaly in this tale, the King James translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, the translators consistently employed the gloss assembly 
in the Old Testament, in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures. The same word, same concept, same idea, translated assembly. While in the New Testament, they used church. Because by the time the King James Bible was being translated, church was the building, the chapel, the basilica, the place where you met. That was the church. The organization was the church. Hadn't really anything to do with the people or the community around it. That's why we say we go to church. So all of this translation, all of, this, uh, all of these decisions made by translators have impacted the way we view the idea of church. Church is us. And I think we know that, but sometimes we just need to be reminded that the church is not a building. <laughs> the church is not primarily an institution or organization. The church is ecclesia, an assembly, a gathering, a community. One of the few times Jesus is recorded using this word ecclesia, which is translated as church in our Bibles, Matthew chapter 16. But you, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, there's a little asterisk there. Because looking at the Greek, again, I, I know Greek lessons just are boring to most of us, but it's interesting, and I think it makes a lot of sense to me. That word for build has the word for house in it. So it's the idea of building a house or house building, constructing a dwelling place, in other words, a permanent dwelling place. And on this bedrock, that word rock is the word petros, which is bedrock. Like that is where you want to lay the foundations of a structure that's going to be immovable for centuries Forever, it's staying there. It's not going anywhere. You want to drill down to the bedrock. On this bedrock, the foundation, not Peter himself, but on the bedrock foundation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the son of the living God. I'm going to, another way of translating that is build a house for my community. My community that I'm building here is going to find its home in this foundational confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what he's really meaning. He's not talking about building an institution and an organization, although those things are somewhat important. The key is the community. The key is the community. So who are we? <laughs> who are we? Um, I did a little research into what some of the greatest thinkers of the last century have said about church. And C.S. Lewis has this to say about church. I love this quote. He says, For the church is not a human society of people united by their natural affinities. The church is the body of Christ in which all members, however different, and he rejoices in their differences and by no means wishes to iron them out, must share the common life, complementing and helping one another precisely by their differences. We're called to unity, not uniformity. I think God is honored in our differences, in the variety of the family of God. If we were all the same, that would be super boring. 
but we're not. And we gotta embrace those differences and that variety to become fully the body of Christ. I love that. Uh, the author N.T. Wright, who I've quoted many times, he says this in his book, Simply Christian. He says, the church is first and foremost a community, a collection of people, I love what he says here, who belong to one another because they belong to God, the God we know in and through Jesus. We belong to each other because we belong to God. We don't get to say who's in and out. If we belong to God, we're all in it. We're all in it together. Billy Graham said this about church. He says, the church isn't just a particular building or congregation, but the spiritual fellowship of all who belong to Jesus Christ. If we belong to Christ, we also belong to each other. It's the community. It's the family. And the late Rachel Held Evans says this in her book, Searching for Sunday. She says, the church is God saying, I'm throwing a banquet and all these mismatched, messed up people are invited. Here, have some wine. She goes on to say, this is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they're rich or worthy or good, but because they're hungry and because they said yes. And there's always room for more. There's always room for more at the Lord's table. There's always room for more in God's family. There's always room for more in the kingdom of oddballs. <laughs> I know I'm one. So who are we as Tulip Street Christian Church? That's why I wanted to emphasize this. We've been working over the last several months on fleshing out our mission statement a little bit more, our, our vision statement. And I think we've settled on this. At Tulip Street Christian Church, we are a Christ-centered community, helping everyone experience a life worth living as we know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. I hope that's something you're excited about doing and being a part of. But first and foremost, beyond anything else, we are a Christ-centered community. It's not about the name on the sign. It's not about the building itself. It's not about the structure and organization. It's about the community, the body, the family. This is us. And we'll talk more about the second part of that next week. That's where I'm splitting this into two parts. I want to go back to this real quick as we wrap up here. Um, the, back to this article about church being, ecclesia being translated as church instead of community, gathering, assembly, whatever. Um, he says, seeing church as a small gathering, most often in a home around eating, drinking, and discussion, suggests a shift away from institution to small groups based on personal relations. To be faithful to the New Testament, we should consider moving in this direction. Oh no, you see the phrase in there, don't you? Small groups. Yes, we're going to be talking more about small groups next week. Because church is more than just the building and the institution, but church is also more than what we do for an hour to an hour and 15 minutes here on a Sunday morning. There's so much more to this life in Christ. And if you're not involved in a smaller group, you're missing out. You're missing out on the actual transformation that can happen. You're missing out on the relationships that can be built. You're missing out on so much life in Christ 
if there is no smaller gathering of faithful Christians and Bible-believing Christians that are there to encourage each other and live life together, that's what it's all about at the end of the day, is the community. And if we, as Restoration people, want to get back to the New Testament pattern, a big part of that was meeting together in homes, eating, drinking, fellowshipping, and really talking about things that matter. This is us. I want to invite the worship team back up. This is us. And I want to close with this part of the prayer that Jesus prayed over his disciples. If you are able and willing, let's stand and we'll remain standing for the song that comes after. But this is Jesus' prayer, not just for his disciples, not just for those closest to him during his earthly ministry, but for all of those who would come after. That's you and me, part of that unbroken chain reaching back centuries. This is his prayer for us. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will believe in me through their message. I pray that they may all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. It's about unity. It's about community. It's about freedom in Christ and living the life he has promised for us here and now, every day, and leaving a legacy for those who will come behind us. Amen, church? Let's let's sing together.